Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. That's the good news. And that's about all the good news we've got for you today. No good martinis today, a couple of bad martinis, and a crazy, which is also really bad news if you're a conservative in Michigan, but we'll get to that in due time. Uh, Let's start with uh, bad martini number one. Uh, First of all, the White House crowing about the new jobs report and close to 400,000 jobs created in the month of May. So uh, that's certainly nothing to sneeze at. Uh, In fact, it's a pretty good number, Uh, but uh, experts also expect that to slow. And There's still millions of jobs that remain unfilled. Uh, Wage growth was uh, less than expected, which is definitely not good when it was already nowhere near keeping pace with inflation. But here's the the bad martini and kind of the maddening martini. Biden making comments about all of this today from from, uh, the beach in Delaware. And he says, uh, you know, we still have these problems. We've got uh, high gas prices and that's making high grocery prices too. and, And we get that. And then, of course, he blames it all again on Vladimir Putin. The two challenges on the minds of most working families are prices at the pump and prices at the grocery store. Both of these challenges have been directly exacerbated by Putin's war in Ukraine. The price of gas is up $1.40 since the beginning of the year when Putin began amassing troops at the Ukrainian border. This is a Putin price hike. Putin's war has raised the price of food because Ukraine and Russia are two of the world's major breadbaskets for wheat and corn, the basic product for so many foods around the world. So, Jim, it's a tired old act. We know inflation was already pretty rampant uh, well before Putin invaded Ukraine back in February. So Biden is trying to pull the wool over our eyes. The silver lining here is that a new poll from Trafalgar in recent days shows the American people aren't buying it. 59, basically 60%, 59.9% say the inflation's as a result of President Biden's policies and spending. 31.5% say it's uh, it's a result of Russia's war with Ukraine. 8.5% aren't sure. And the situation uh, in Ukraine is is contributing to the problem. But the idea that it's largely based on that is simply not true. And yet Biden keeps beating this dead horse. You know, um, in last fall, I guess it was the 10th of November, President Biden was giving a speech in Baltimore at the port. And he, you know, at that point was saying, ah, it's these, you know, supply chain issues. There's nothing I can do about that, you know. And at one point he says, you know, this is this also means we've got higher demand for goods at the same time we're facing disruptions in the supplies to make those goods. This is a recipe for delays and for higher prices and people are feeling it. They're feeling it. Did you ever think you'd be paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. Now, right now in California, if you said, oh, I paid $4.50 a gallon, people would say, oh, my God, where did you find it? It was so cheap. <laughs> Uh, right now, the average cost of a gallon of gas is $4.76 nationally. In California, it's $6.24. So what you know, that $4.50 a gallon that Biden was exclaiming about last November, uh, you know, is a good, but that, that's the good old days in California these days. Just, you know, ipso facto evidence that inflation and runaway gas prices were both at work before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. No doubt that exacerbated it when the U.S. when the U.S. and lots of other countries say we don't want Russian oil anymore. We've decided that we're not going to support the Russian war machine. Then, yes, that's going to cut off a source of supply. 
we'll be talking a bit more about other sources of supply in another martini in a second, but this is, you know, the same old tired excuses. And I guess what's kind of striking about Biden, we, we talked a bit early in the week about that NBC story, how often he just comes across as this guy, like, well, there's just nothing I can do about it. He's, ah, you know, what are we going to do? You know, he's buffeted by events. And I don't mean Warren buffeted. He's been pushed around by things beyond his control. And he goes out there and he's like, ah, you know, and apparently, according to these, you know, advisors, Biden just believes he is just beset by one bit of bad luck after another. And there's just nothing. He would really like to speak to the manager. Somebody should do something about that. It's kind of the subtext of a lot of his, his speeches and stuff, whether it's uh, gun violence or uh, inflation or high gas prices or uh, the baby formula shortage, which nobody told him about. He insists, you know, it's always a day late. It's always a dollar short. It's always excuses. And I think the American people are tired of it. And I think this is a, um, a, a flailing and hapless presidency. And I'm reminded uh, shortly after the Afghanistan debacle, uh, writing that, and then Susan Glasser of The New Yorker saying it was far too early to write off Joe Biden. Greg, do you think it's still too early to write off Joe Biden? <laughs> uh, for the midterms, I think it's getting pretty late. Uh, who knows? I could turn it around. Reagan had a pretty rough uh, midterm in 82 and did pretty well in 84, as I recall. But uh, I don't see a lot of parallels between Biden and Reagan. <laughs> no, no, age is about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should say the perception that they're old is about it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, the conflicting messages, and we talked about this yesterday too, uh, it's Putin's fault. There's not much we can do about it. And oh, by the way, we're doing great. And it's uh, your fault for not understanding how great we're you doing. You don't know how good you have it because of us. You're <laughs> lucky we're doing such a terrific job. Stop whining, America. <laughs> Just thank God you've got me. <laughs> it's all their fault. And it's awesome at the same time. That is quite the dichotomy. Well done, Mr. President. All right, Jim, let's talk about uh, other things that uh, we can feel a little bit better about, and that is uh, smart investments. You know who's getting a ton of attention these days? Elon Musk, of course. He just told everybody to get back in the office if they want to keep their jobs. He's trying to buy Twitter. He's commenting on a lot of things. I think he endorsed the guy you profiled uh, for LA mayor uh, just here in the last 24 hours. So he's waiting on a bunch of stuff. But You're how, Caruso, how, yes. <laughs> yes. How much is your attention worth? According to Elon Musk, $44 billion. That's how much he's trying to buy Twitter for. And that's because he realizes Twitter's attention economy is probably an incredible money machine, if it's done right anyway. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, just a single tweet from someone like Elon Musk can really have a major impact on stocks. But Elon Musk got really, really rich by making really smart decisions and pursuing innovative products. But one of the things he's also told investors recently on Twitter is the importance of owning physical things. And there's one physical investment that the ultra rich are paying a lot of attention to lately. I'm talking about the 1.7 trillion with a TR contemporary art market. Not only is a Picasso beautiful, it can also sell for millions of dollars. And thanks to Masterworks, our listeners can now invest in art alongside the ultra-rich. Masterworks lets anyone invest in paintings by artists like Monet, Basquiat, and Banksy. And you don't need to be a millionaire to invest in art at Masterworks. To learn more, just go to masterworks.io slash martini. That's masterworks.io slash martini. Cancel culture is coming to your bank and holding the wrong political views might soon leave you out in the cold. 
I'm Bill Walton. On the latest episode of The Bill Walton Show, Todd Zwicky, Paul Watkins, and I discuss what is already happening, how the Biden administration is already pursuing this agenda, and what we can do about it. This progressive culture offensive is relentless. It's coming for you, and you won't hear about this anywhere else. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our second bad martini now. And this is also the focal point of Friday's morning jolt. It's uh, Biden once again not being able to keep his story straight on another topic. And this time it's his relationship with the Saudi government. You alluded in the first martini that uh, Biden is uh, looking for supplies of energy. If you listen to his cabinet, man, we're going all in on the green energy. But uh, if you have any foot in reality, you know that you're going to need oil and gas and coal uh, for quite a while if you're ever going to make that transition. And of course, uh, Biden wants uh, the Saudis to start pumping more oil because for some reason he doesn't want us to do it. So he'd rather have it shipped all the way across the world, which I'm sure is better for the environment. And so the big uh, about face here is how Biden during the campaign was saying he's really going to crack down on the Saudis because of how they uh, killed and bonesawed uh, Jamal Khashoggi in their uh, consulate in Istanbul. Uh, and so there was, uh, you know, trying to make him a pariah. He's going to end subsidies. And now uh, he, of course, is uh, headed over to Saudi Arabia to meet with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and grovel, I assume, uh, for production of more petroleum. So, uh, Jim, whatever you think of the, of the Khashoggi story, uh, Biden's about face here is once again uh, a stark lesson in campaign rhetoric versus global realities. Yeah, this has been a, by probably by many measures, a very predictable stepping on a rake and having it sla- you know, smack you in the face with Joe Biden. It's one of those, there's a certain argument of, you know, the only thing you find in the middle of the road are yellow lines and roadkill. Um, you know, that, that if you, if you're, the, you know, if you're standing on the fence, you're getting a sore crotch, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, metaphors of you know being in the middle often does not pay off in politics. So let's go back to 2019. Let's go back to you know, the the utterly brutal assassination and dismemberment of Khashoggi. The U.S. had to take some reaction to that. That you know he was a U.S. green card holder. Um, does Saudi Arabia commit all kinds of human rights abuses all the time? Sure, but when it's a U.S. green card holder and it's done in a, in a you know consulate and things like that, you just have to do something. You just have to send a signal. No, you can't do that. We can't act like this is normal political behavior. You crossed a line and you kind of needed the equivalent of putting Saudi Arabia in the timeout chair for a while for for parents out there. You need some sort of punishment, but you didn't need to blow up the entire U.S.-Saudi relationship, right? You know, as I lay out in today's morning jolt, as much as we find the Saudis to be an extraordinarily frustrating ally or friend, um, they still are you know, not, it's not just a matter of oil, although oil is a big part of it. They are the guardians of Mecca and Medina. They have a very big voice in, uh, the Muslim world, in the Arab world and in the overall Middle East. Um, they are really important, even though there are certain, you know, longstanding reports and suspicions that the Saudi Royal family or portions of the Saudi Royal family, let's keep in mind, there's like 4,000 members of them, uh, support Islamism, support Al Qaeda, support, uh, terrorist groups and things like that. On the other hand, Saudi intelligence is helpful to U.S. intelligence. Uh, Saudi, you know, passes along information. They're helpful for tracking foreign fighters. They do provide us a lot of assistance we need because they're in the the crosshairs of the bad guys the same way we are. Um, 
There are, they're starting to have a little bit of a thaw towards Israel. I don't want to oversell that, but a lot of people feel like the Abraham Accords could not have advanced if they, as much as they did, if Saudi Arabia had been resolutely and completely opposed to Israel the way they used to be. So I'm not saying, don't oversell it, but there's a little bit of a sign that they're at least coming around to the fact that someday it's going to happen. They want to see action on the Palestinians. I think it's safe to say we're still a long ways away. But basically, this was a long and complicated relationship that built up over decades. And the idea that we were just going to say, we're going to turn them into a pariah and just completely cut all U.S. relations was simply not a realistic option. Now, why was this the case? Well, I suspect, and why, but you know, people might say, why were Democrats so fired up about Saudi Arabia in 2019? Was it just Khashoggi? Well, also, I suspect the perception was that Donald Trump was close to the Saudi regime. Um, which is probably not what people would have necessarily expected from Trump, but he was one of the first countries he visited. And by and large, Trump was not the kind of guy who was going to stand up for human rights against autocrats if he felt like the U.S. had economic interests or other interests at stake. And for Democrats, it was basically reached a point of you could not be anti-Saudi enough. It wasn't really that you know the Democratic grassroots were upset with Trump because he was too close to the Saudis. Greg, I think it's more accurate the Democratic grassroots were really upset with the Saudis because they were too close to Trump. <laughs> and so Biden was asked about this by Andrea Mitchell. And, you know, as usual, not thinking about the consequences of his actions or his words, Biden blurts out, we're going to turn him into a pariah state. Well, the, you know, it's not like there's a light switch where you can just say, OK, we're turning him into a pariah state. You really can't. Uh, and by March, the U.S., you know, Biden had announced that we were going to limit certain arms sales for the Saudis, for what they were using in fighting in Yemen. But we were not going to completely turn them into a pariah state. And in fact, really just six weeks into the Biden administration, State Department spokesman Ned Price has the job of coming out and saying, hey, remember that big you know, campaign promise from Biden? It's not really going to go through the way we said. Quote, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is important. It's important to U.S. interests and it requires continued progress and reforms to ensure that this important partnership rests on strong fundamentals and continues to advance our shared objectives in the Middle East. It's a far, far cry from we're going to turn them into the pariahs that they are, as Biden pledged. So you kind of knew Biden was always going to back, you know, back up from this. This was always the sort of thing that, you know, was going to be almost impossible to implement. Here he is, and then he starts trying to, to backtrack. But by that point, the damage is done to MBS. MBS doesn't like him. You know, Democrats started noticing back last fall, Saudi Arabia's oil production was being, you know, significantly lower than you might have expected. So now all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, is this a consequence? Is, is MBS really mad at the U.S., really mad at Biden? And is he trying to punish that? And there were some interesting comments from Saudis in Washington that basically said, look, you know, we're trying, you know, oil demand dropped near zero or, you know, dramatically dropped in early 2020. Because of that, we're not eager to expand our production because that makes the price go down. But then there was this really interesting little comment, quote, the kingdom resents being blamed for what is essentially a structural problem, not of its own making, in the U.S., which has hampered its own energy production. Finally, I hear the price of Thanksgiving turkeys has doubled in the U.S., so why can oil prices not also not inflate? And this was from a uh, Saudi national who's considered you know, close to MBS. And then he added a winky emoji at the end of that statement. <laughs> Kind of a neener, neener, neener. <laughs> Don't you wish you had our oil now comment from the Saudis? So I think it's safe to say, yeah, Biden's campaign you know, tra trail stance you know, offered in the heat of the moment of a debate in which he was trying to compete to see who could be the most anti-Saudi 
all of a sudden had real consequences. So then partly also then in March, there were reports that Biden was trying to get on the phone with MBS and MBS would not take his call. Now, for what it's worth, the White House denied that report. Also, I point out if that if that report were true, the White House would still deny that report. No one, no one likes to admit our president can't get his phone calls answered and he's being snubbed by this. So now here we are. It's an, about a year and a half into Biden's presidency. A gallon of gas is now averaging $4.71 nationwide. MBS hates his guts and wants to see him, you know, grovel. And of course, you know, a lot of the antagonism with Saudi Arabia was driven in part by the Biden administration's desperate effort to revive the Iran deal. You know, as we were listening to, if you're listening to yesterday's podcast, the Iranian regime that tried to hack a children's hospital in Boston, right? Um, so now Biden's really got the worst of all possible worlds because he had tried to do this and tried to take a tough line in Khashoggi. And now he's got a reverse course. So the human rights groups are appalled. The Washington Post editorial board, I suspect, will be ripping him a new one. That basically everybody who thought Biden was doing the right thing before thinks, sees this as this giant sellout. But also, I don't think MBS is going to be Biden's friend anytime soon. And I think he's really going to enjoy this upcoming summit. Um, and I think it's going to be a great humiliation to Biden for having denounced this guy. And now he's got to go over and shake his hand and act like he's just another political leader. And by the way, I just kind of observe, if Biden could be brought to heel and made to shake the hands of Mohammed bin Salman, Greg, is it absolutely unthinkable that someday he could shake hands with Vladimir Putin? Oh, yeah, he could He could definitely do that. I right? mean, yeah, well, then, you know, it's we have to be realistic. You know, Russia's not going anywhere. Putin's not going anywhere. We have to do all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, people have said this was a this move was a triumph of realism in Biden foreign politics. But no point out realism doesn't start with like this sweeping, idealistic, unrealistic proposal and then retreating away. Right. This really ensures that he managed to get the worst possible because we've got both high gas prices. The Saudis you know, don't like us and it's not likely to go away anytime soon. Our, our influence in the region is diminished. The human rights groups are upset because you did, in their eyes, you did the right thing and then you backed away. And now you're going to basically have to completely, you know, uh, uh, knuckle under and look like a fool and, you know, have to give the Saudis what they want. Uh, all but at the same time, while, you know, not helping U.S. production, which would at least increase our leverage against the Saudis. It, it is absolutely a cluster you-know-what, and I am reminded of Barack Obama's statement, don't underestimate Joe's ability to you know what, this up, except he didn't say, you know what. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, everyone should read the Morning Jolt every weekday. Not only do you learn a ton, uh, but you also get sentences that start like this. While no one deserves to get murdered and dismembered, comma, it is worth <laughs> keeping very in mind. Few. <laughs> very few people deserve that. Let's just... Uh, it is Bin worth... Laden, uh, al-Baghdadi, Adam Gase, you know, the usuals. <laughs> He had to include him. Uh, anyway, also want you to know that we are brought to you today in part by NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. And that's because we have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life. And the reason they're the most innovative, free market innovation. That's what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators. And they're attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors, like Europe and China, are closing the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. 
Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now, which will ultimately end up as a bad martini a few months from now. But let's go to my home state of Michigan. Those of you who uh, heard the podcast on our backstories on Monday, uh, learned a little bit more about uh, my growing up in Michigan, and I've certainly referred to it a number of times on the podcast. But uh, Jim, outside of uh, people in Washington, I'm not sure, well, other than Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom and Okay, there's a few. Uh, few people have uh, gotten more of our frustration uh, since the start of the pandemic than Gretchen Whitmer with her husband trying to cut in front of the line to get their boat out for a holiday weekend and her ordering that certain aisles would be roped off and not even allowing lawn care when nobody would be interacting. She was uh, quite happy to exercise as much power as possible during all of that. And uh, she's not a good governor in a number of other ways as well. Uh, her approval numbers had not been great. And it looked like that even though there weren't really any top tier household names running for governor, that she was vulnerable. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't appear to be likely anymore because several Republican candidates for governor, <laughs> including some of the party's top hopefuls, have been blocked from the primary ballot after signatures the candidates submitted included alleged forgeries. The five GOP candidates have said they were unaware of any problems with their signatures and most are pursuing legal avenues to get on the August 2nd uh, ballot, but the first round of legal challenges did not succeed for two of the most significant uh, candidates today, namely James Craig, the former police chief in Detroit, who probably would have been the nominee. There was also Perry Johnson, who was billing himself as the person focused on the details and could get stuff done because he knew how to run businesses. Well, that's not going to work out well for him. Also, businesswoman Tudor Dixon uh, was charged with this. It looks like she's going to make it onto the ballot, but uh, James Craig and Perry Johnson will not. And so uh, given recent polls, uh, the odds of Tudor Dixon becoming the next governor of Michigan, at least at this point, do not seem strong. So Jim, Basic blocking and tackling in campaigning uh, is is critical here. And job number one is to actually get on the ballot by having people sign your petitions. Uh, it looks like they hired some of these uh, petition circulating companies and they just uh, you know forged a, a ton of signatures. There's allegations of, of dirty pool here. The Democrats might have infiltrated the process. We don't have any evidence of that. But the basic line is, is that Gretchen Whitmer appears now to be cruising to re-election because Republicans uh, uh, couldn't uh, do even the most basic things right. I was going to say, I'm glad you used the the metaphor of blocking and tackling, uh, Greg, because, you know, we, you know, I mean, for what one, I'd like to think, you know, Wolverine fans, you'd understand that metaphor. Yes. Uh, you know, even in Ohio State, they understand blocking and tackling. <laughs> um, but just, just like the, the, you know, if you're like, oh, the, the Democrats infiltrated the firm that I hired and stuff. Well, you know, maybe you should have done it yourself. Like this, this is a really fundamental, basic qualifying for the ballot it is really a, a thing. And I, I kind of wonder, one, it's it's really atrocious for any businessman who runs on, I know how to get things done. I pay attention to the details. I'm, you know, I'm a can-do kind of guy. Like this, this really is a black eye of the sort of thing that's not going to um, uh, be easily recovered from. Uh, it's also worth noting there are still five candidates in the race. Uh, I would point out, though, some of the, the short descriptions that I'm seeing over here on Bridge, Michigan is not enormously encouraging. No. Uh, as you said, Norton Shores, media personality, Tudor Dixon, Bloomfield Township businessman, Kevin Rinke, 
Matawan chiropractor Garrett Soldano. Let's straighten out this state. Uh, <laughs> Allendale Township real estate agent Ryan Kelly. Have I got a state to sell for you? And Oakland Hills Community Church Pastor Ralph Rabin. Now, I don't know much about these candidates, and I wish these guys well. But um, there's been this in this populist nationalist mood, you know, mood in the country. Oh, we need an outsider. We need somebody. You know, okay, that's great. That's fine. Uh, there are times I, I buy into the idea that we need some sort of fresh thinking, somebody who is not encumbered by the idea of business as usual, politics as usual. This is the way we've always done things. So this is the way we're always going to do it. But they're the typical establishment candidate, the typical person who's already run for some other office before and maybe served a term or two, maybe at a local level or somewhere in the state legislature or something like that. The nice thing about that is they generally know how the process works and they actually aren't coming at it from a uh, a blank slate of, of not understanding all of these basic things about how do you get on the ballot and the importance of actually you know bothering to check to make sure you've got the right kind of signatures and stuff. If they were forgeries, and my understanding is that like a whole bunch of them were like you could see the same, same address or same handwriting over and over again. Um, you know, this this is the sort of thing somebody on that campaign is supposed to be looking over those things and making sure that they aren't getting scammed, that they aren't getting this, and that the IDs of the people check out. I'm reminded of uh, the, you know, I think it was the Kerry campaign. It was, you know, or, or Democratic groups in 2004. They wanted to go out and register votes, and I think they were paying people for each sheet of um, reg voter registrations that were filled out. And so the people doing it figured out, well, nobody was really checking it. So you could write out Mickey Mouse at, you know, 123 Main Street or something like that. And you could make stuff up and turn it in. And then on election day, Democrats are trying to turn out their voters. And it turns out there is no Mickey Mouse living at 123 Main Street and stuff like that. So this is, this, as you said, this is basic blocking and tackling. This is your job if you're on a campaign. And, and I've, I've kind of lamented, mostly at the presidential level, campaigns that I call, you know, like, you know, book tours with bigger audiences uh there are speeches you know and, and maybe sometimes they actually do book signings and stuff like that but it really is very big on look at me look at how great i am i love applause i love everybody seeing but not focusing on the actual here's what i'm going to do if i'm in office right and here's what i should vote for me and all kinds of stuff. things that are basically i you know sure i'd like to be president of the united states but i'm really willing to settle for a good slot at fox news or MSNBC if you're a Democrat. <laughs> that's a really cynical way of looking at these things, but I've covered a lot of presidential campaigns and that's where I'm getting it. You do not reassure anyone about your seriousness when you screw up something as basic as the petitions to get on the ballot. And I can't help but have a feeling that you know it's great to have enthusiasm on the Republican side. It's great to have a lots of people who want to get involved in the political system. But you know what? You got to do your homework. You got to actually say, all right, if I want to be on the ballot, what do I have to do? Generally, they're not that complicated. There have been some states that have had some ridiculous uh, rules and things that were clearly designed to make it tough for newcomers to come in and protect incumbents and stuff like that. But you know what? If you want this job, if you want to be into that elected office, nobody ever said this was going to be easy. You got to be willing to go out and do that. And in the case of this, uh, it appears that they outsourced it. They didn't pay attention to it. They figured it was done. And they ended up slipping on a banana peel. It's an embarrassment to the party and probably undermines the chances of unseating Gretchen Whitmer, who is among the governors in this country who most deserve to be voted out this November. I don't want to say it, Greg. I know you're, you're, you're cringing already, even though I can't see you. Way to go, Michigan Republicans. Way to go. Totally deserved. Totally deserved. It gets even worse, Jim. My streak is intact. 
My mother has informed me that I have once again received an application to vote by absentee ballot in Michigan, where I have not lived since the late 1990s. So no matter how many times we tell them I don't live there, they just keep coming. So I'm sure that nobody else is taking advantage of this whole situation. But anyway, there we go. Because yeah, so you have a home, you have a home address with your with your parents, right? So as, as yeah. far as first of all, I just want to point out the state of Michigan still thinks you live with your parents. Um, then the next thing is is that. You know, if you're getting it, how many other people are getting it? And hopefully nobody's filling this out in the names of their, uh, you know, actually here. So let's say somebody else got their hands on that ballot and chose to fill it out in your name. Like if they just put in a, do they have, is Michigan one of those Dropbox states? I don't think they have a Dropbox state. Now this is not the actual ballot. It's an application for the ballot. Okay. So you have to fill out the application, then get the ballot and then fraudulently vote. Okay. And then probably at some point in that process, hopefully you'd have to show some form of ID. Yeah, I don't bet or on proof it. you live where you live. Or maybe not. Maybe just, yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, is it the weekend yet, Greg? <laughs> We've got the very best people working on these things uh, all the way across the board in Michigan. Yeah, it hurts to hear that, Jim, but you're not wrong. And that's what hurts even more. All right, Jim, have a good weekend. Talk to you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell your friends about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. And join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. And the obvious challenge to that is the media blackout. Um, you know, if, if this were in the other direction, if if the, if the, if the difference here was, um, you know, going in the other direction, then it would be nonstop in the same way. In fact, actually, we have a pretty neat case study in this with the Russia hoax itself. It was nonstop coverage from the media that was essentially doing in journalistic gymnastics to fabricate a conspiracy theory. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.